Hey everybody, it's Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. Now, if you've tuned in in the past, then you know that at Melbourne Heights, we are about growing closer to God together. And this week, we want to help you grow closer to God by thinking about how God feels about you, how God feels about others, and how you're supposed to feel about others too. So we're going to be taking a closer look this week at the story of Jesus calling his first disciples and seeing what that has to teach us about the way that God feels about everyone. And we're going to find out that when it comes to God, there are no exceptions to the people that God loves. So without any further ado, let's get straight into this week's sermon. The year was 1936. And as any good history student could tell you, the Great Depression was now seven years old, and World War II was still three years away. It was 1936, and a new house would have cost you $4,000, a brand new car would have cost about 600 bucks, and you could have filled up that gas tank for less than a dollar, because a gallon of gas cost less than a dime. It was 1936, and if you picked up a newspaper, you could have read stories about the re-election of Franklin D. Roosevelt to his second term as president. You could have read stories about the completion of the Boulder Dam out west, something that we now call the Hoover Dam today. If you flipped over to the birth announcements in the newspaper, you could have read about the birth of Jim Henson, who went on to create the Muppets, Mary Tyler Moore, who went on to be, well, Mary Tyler Moore, and a little boy named Jorge Bergoglio, who became Pope Francis just a few years ago. If you flipped over to the book review section, you could have read about a little book. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Gone with the Wind. I think it went on to have a little bit of success. But the biggest news stories of 1936 had little to do with elections, depressions, or building projects. The biggest news stories of 1936 all focused on a bunch of games that were played about 4,500 miles from where we're sitting this morning. These games took place in Berlin, Germany. That's right, 1936 was an Olympic year. And during that year, Adolf Hitler welcomed the world to his country. And Hitler saw the 1936 Olympics as the perfect chance to show off the so-called superiority of his Aryan race. Now, what you may not realize about the 1936 Olympics in Germany is how well the Germans actually performed that year. That year, the German Olympic team won more gold medals than almost any other country won total medals. And all, and all the Germans took home 89 medals that year, including 33 gold medals, far outpacing the second-place American Olympians, who brought home a grand total of 56 medals. Now, Germany's performance in the 36 games did little to help Hitler's feelings about outside people, his beliefs that would lead him to slaughter roughly 12 million people, including 6 million Jews, 2 million Polish, and 4 million other people simply considered undesirable by the Nazi regime. But as horrifying as these statistics are, they speak to a harsher reality of the human condition. You see, we as humans want to believe that we are better than other people. We as people want to believe that we are better than other people. 
There's actually a psychological phenomenon behind this. It's called better than most. And according to this phenomenon, everyone believes that we are better than most other people. We are better than 40, we are better than 50% of other people out there. And this belief, this belief that we are better than other people has manifested itself time and time again throughout our world's history. It's crossed countries and continents. As one group fights to dominate another simply because they feel like they're better. We've seen this happen in America over the centuries. We saw this for 400 years while African Americans were bought and sold as property and enslaved. We saw this, this idea that some people are better than others manifested throughout the entire Crusades across the European continent where Christians marched across Europe killing Muslims and even other Christians who just weren't like them. We saw this manifested in the ancient world as the Assyrian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, all set out to expand their territories and subdue what they called the barbarians. We even see this mindset that some people are better than others playing out in biblical times. It happened throughout the conquest of the promised land that the people of Israel entered into after they themselves had been enslaved for centuries. Israel, as they entered into the promised land, the land that God had given to their ancestors, they fought and they killed off anyone who wasn't one of them. And even after taking full control over the promised land, Israel still preferred to keep outsiders at arm's length. So it's safe to say, Safe to say that many people throughout history, many people, even in the lineage of our own faith, carry disdain for these so-called outsiders. Now, when we talk about the people of Israel, they had a specific name that they used to refer to anyone who was not an Israelite, one of their people. They called them Gentiles. Gentiles is a word that simply means the nations, but it was a derogatory term for the people of Israel. Gentiles were seen as unworthy. They were seen as unfit. They were seen as unable to come before God. So the people of Israel were careful to keep the Gentiles out of their sacred places. They were careful building up specific structures and areas where the Gentiles were not allowed to go, even inside of the most holy places, even in places that were reserved to worship God. Now, the funny thing about this mindset that we are better than other people it can be seen in the same story from the 1936 Olympics, because here's the thing. If I had asked you before this worship service started, who won the most gold medals, who won the most total medals in the 1936 Olympics, I don't guess anyone would have thought it was the German Olympic team. Nobody remembers the German domination of those Olympics games. History has forgotten those 33 gold medals and 89 total medals that they won that year because history remembers another winner from those games. But to get to that story, we have to go a little bit further back than 1936. This story actually begins on September 12, 1913, when Henry and Emma welcomed their son into the world. And his athletic career begins in 1928 in Cleveland, Ohio. 
1928 in Cleveland, Ohio, this athlete set junior high school records, clearing six feet in the high jump. Now, I want you to understand, I'm six foot two, so that means that this guy could jump over my head without any problems. And it's not just, as a a junior high schooler, okay, he could jump over my head. He set records in, in the long jump, jumping 22 feet, 11 and three quarters inches. That was in junior high school. He only got better the older he got. When he got to high school, he won every major track and field event that he participated in, including the Ohio State Championship three years in a row. As a senior in high school, when he attended the National Interscholastic Meet in Chicago, Illinois, he set high school world records, running the 100-yard dash in 9.4 seconds. Here's the really incredible That record, that high school record of a 100-yard dash in 9.4 seconds, that wasn't just a high school record. He also tied the world record with that run as a senior in high school. He went on. He ran the 220-yard dash in 20.7 seconds. I'd be lucky if I could make it to that door in 20.7 seconds. And the week before, he had set the world record for the long jump jumping 24 feet, 11 and 3 quarters inches. This was a high school athlete. So when it came time to select his college, as you might be able to imagine, every college wanted him to be a part of their team. Dozens of colleges recruited him, but he decided he wanted to stay close to home and attended the Ohio State University, even though Ohio State couldn't offer him a scholarship at the time. But at Ohio State University, he gave a great preview of what was about to happen in Berlin. At the Big Ten Championships in Ann Arbor, Michigan on May 5, 1935, this athlete set three world records and tied a fourth in the span of 45 minutes. That's right, in a little bit less time than it will take us to, to worship God during the service this morning, this athlete set three world records and tied a fourth. Here's the amazing thing. Going into the event, he didn't even know if he was going to be able to compete in any of these. He had fallen down the stairs a few weeks earlier, and he had a sore back from it. So he had to convince his track coach to let him run the 100-yard dash just to see if he was going to be okay. And when he ran it, he ran it in 9.4 seconds, again, tying the world record that he had already tied and set when he was a senior in high school. So it's safe to say that testing out his sore back, well, he passed that test with flying colors. So in spite of the pain that he had, he went on and he competed in three other events, and he set world records in all three of them, too. In 45 minutes, he accomplished what many experts in the field of athletics still believe is the single most impressive athletic feat in history. Three world records, tied to four in four grueling track and field events. His success at the Big Ten Championships in 1935 gave him the confidence that he needed to compete at the highest level possible at the Olympic Games in 1936. And even though Adolf Hitler saw the 1936 Olympics as a chance to prove the dominance of his Aryan race, our young Olympian had other plans. During that Olympics, He became the first American athlete, first American track and field athlete to win four gold medals in a single Olympiad, an achievement that went untouched for nearly 50 years before Carl Lewis matched it in the 1984 Olympics. 
But this isn't the whole story about this athlete either. So as Paul Harvey might have said, and now the rest of the story, that proud Olympian who rose to the platform to receive four gold medals during the Berlin Olympic Games wasn't just an American athlete. As it turns out, his family moved to Ohio when he was just nine years old. Before that, his dad had been a sharecropper on a farm in Alabama, and his dad's dad had been a slave. This American hero was also an African-American. And during a time of deep-rooted segregation in his own country, he not only discredited Hitler's master race theory, he affirmed that individual excellence, rather than race or national origin, is actually what distinguishes one person from another. To this day, his name has become synonymous with Olympic greatness because this proud Olympian was none other than Jesse Owens. So the funny thing about the 1936 Olympic Games is that Hitler saw it as a chance to show the superiority of his master race. But the 36 Olympics is best remembered for the achievements of an African-American, someone that Hitler wouldn't have even shooken hands with, someone that Hitler believed was inferior to him. It's also funny that someone shows up back in biblical times who challenges the assumptions of superiority that the people of Israel seem to have. Even in a time of self-professed religious superiority, someone showed up onto the scenes to prove that God has no favorites. And we hear part of the story in Matthew chapter 4. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. And as you're finding it, I'll just remind you that Matthew is a, essentially a biography of Jesus' life. So inside of this gospel, inside of this book, we're going to find stories about Jesus' birth, his baptism. We'll learn about his ministry, the miracles he performed. We'll also hear about his, cru- his crucifixion, his resurrection. But in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start reading with verse 12. This is how Matthew shares the story. Now when Jesus heard that John was arrested, he went to Galilee. He left Nazareth and he settled in Capernaum, which lies alongside the sea in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. This fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet said, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, alongside the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who lived in the dark have seen a great light. And a light has come upon those who lived in the region and in the shadow of death. From that time, Jesus began to announce, Change your hearts and your lives, for here comes the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus walked alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, throwing fishing nets into the sea because they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will show you how to fish for people. Right away they left their nets and they followed him. Continuing on, he saw another set of brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with Zebedee and their father repairing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Now typically when we read this passage of of Scripture, we listen to Jesus' calling to Simon Peter and Andrew. We listen to him say, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, 
Countless preachers have used this verse of Scripture as a call for us to do more evangelism and more witnessing, calling us to cast out our lines and reel in those who are far from God. But when we focus in on just that that small little part from this Scripture, we miss out on an important message that Matthew wants us to hear. Because in the first part of this passage of Scripture that I read to you, we find that Jesus is on the road again. And he's traveling once again to be in a new place and be in a new town. But the problem is that usually when we hear the names of of towns or cities inside of the Bible, we tune them out because the names don't mean much to us. We're not familiar with them. We don't know anything about the areas. So when we read inside of Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus is going through Nazareth and Capernaum, they might as well be saying that Jesus is going through Nigeria and the Czech Republic or Neverland and Cloud City because we just don't know anything about these places. But Matthew, Matthew takes the time to try to make us slow down and pay attention to these places by reminding us of the words of the prophet Isaiah where Isaiah says, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali alongside the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who lived in the dark have seen a great light and a light has come upon those who have lived in this region and in the shadow of death. These words, believe it or not, they give us a glimpse of what Capernaum was like. When Isaiah and Matthew's gospel refers to the area as Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember the Gentiles? We talked about them just a couple of minutes ago. Do you remember how Israel fought and killed entire communities just because they weren't Israel's communities? Do you remember how Israel limited the places that outsiders could and could not go in their cities and in their holy places? And do you remember what Israel called these outsiders? Called them Gentiles. But in this story, Jesus, Jesus who is the Son of God, goes to the Gentiles. Jesus goes and he shines the light and shares the love of God where many in his own community felt that God didn't belong. But Jesus went there. Jesus went there. And Jesus went there because God's love isn't contained by our superiority complex. Here's the truth. We don't get to contain the love of God at all. We don't get to contain the love of God at all. The love of God is the domain of God and only God. So God can love whoever God wants to love. And God chooses to love all people. God chooses to love all people regardless of race, of gender, of religion, of sexuality, of any other classification or distinction we want to make, God chooses to love all people. It's the point that Matthew is trying to make inside of the story. That's the point Matthew wants us to hear. Because he doesn't just make statements about Jesus going to the Gentiles. He then shares the story of Jesus calling Simon and Andrew to be fishers of men. But he tells us something really important 
ahead of time that we often miss. Because although we have heard when Jesus is calling Simon and Andrew to be fishers of men, although we usually use this as some great call to evangelism, it misses the larger point of this image. Think about it for just a second. Who are Simon and Andrew? Who are Simon and Andrew and what are they doing when Jesus comes across them and calls them to follow him? What's their profession? They are fishermen. They are fishermen. They're not part-time anglers who are just wetting their lines on a Saturday morning down in some creek not far from where they live. These aren't just guys who are going out in hopes of reeling in some kind of trophy catch just to release it a few minutes later after they've snapped a picture they can post on social media. These are professional fishermen. They relied on the fish that they caught to provide for themselves and for their family. And Matthew makes a clear point about this inside of this story. When he specifically calls out to us that Simon and Andrew weren't the kind of fishermen who were using rods and reels. Matthew points out in verse 18 that they were throwing fishing nets into the sea. They were throwing nets into the sea. Why were they using nets instead of rods and reels? How many fish can you catch on one line? One. How many fish can you catch with a net? Lots and lots of fish. Simon and Andrew... They are in the business of catching as many fish as they possibly can so that they could go and they could sell their catch at the market. So the more fish that they caught, the more fish that they could sell, and the more fish that they could sell, the more money that they could make. So Simon and Andrew were never in the business of turning any fish away. So when Jesus says to them that he will make them fishers of people, he means that he is going to make them professionals, that they are going to cast their nets far and wide in hopes of reaching as many people as they possibly can. Do you see it? Do you see what Matthew is trying to tell us? Do you see it? Because he's telling us that God is not a God of superiority. He is telling us that God is not a God who picks and chooses. Matthew is telling us that God is a God who loves all. Every one of us. A God that loves you and the people you hate without exception or without exclusion. God loves everyone. We're the ones that make exceptions. God loves everyone. We're the ones that make the exceptions. We're the ones who choose to exclude others because they're different than us. We're the ones who turn other people away because they don't match whatever standards we have set. But God loves everyone. God is always there arms wide open, always loving everyone, even the ones that we try to turn away. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the story that we've heard this morning and the chance that we've had to think about how you feel about us, how you feel about all of your people everyone that you've created. 
and how we should feel about them too. God, we hear clearly time and time again throughout Scripture that you are a God that loves us all. But we also know, God, that in spite of how much you love every single person, that we still like to make exceptions. We still like to think that we're better. God, remind us this morning that we're not. That our call is not to be better. Our call is not to be superior. Our call is not to dominate and oppress because we can. Our call is to love. To love like you do. To love everyone the way that you do. So help us to be a people that are known for our open arms. A people that love. A people that care. A people that accept. A people that welcome all of your children. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, it's Adam again, and thanks for listening to this week's sermon podcast. We hope that it's encouraged you, that's inspired you, and most of all, that it has helped you grow closer to God. But I also want to remind you that listening to a sermon doesn't mean much if it doesn't change the way that you live your life every day. So this week, I want to challenge you to go out and love others the same way that God loves you. I also want to encourage you to stop back in next Tuesday to listen to our next sermon podcast. If you'll go ahead and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app, It'll be saved and waiting for you. And while you're in your favorite podcasting app, why don't you go ahead and write a review for us? Your reviews mean a lot, and they will help other people find this podcast and grow closer to God. So have a great week this week. I hope that it's a blessed week for you, and we'll see you next Tuesday.